Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here today. Good morning to everyone watching and listening online. Good morning to everyone in Port Perry. And for the first time, good evening to everyone at C4 Bowmanville. We are just so glad uh, that you're with us. Now one church in three locations. For the last two weeks, we've been journeying with Paul as he's begun to wrestle through and outline three human conditions found in every culture, every town, every village, every city all over the earth. What do we do with marriage? What do we do about divorce and remarriage? What about being single? What about being single again? What does it mean? How does God define and react to every single one of these? What is sinful? What is spiritual? What is allowed and what is not? What does a fully devoted follower of Jesus do with marriage and divorce and singleness? Now, two weeks ago, we heard clearly from Jesus about the nature and definition of marriage, and we also heard very explicitly about the role of sex within marriage. Last week, we gently walked through divorce and remarriage and actually got God's understanding on this. But today, now, we're going to have a conversation as a family about singleness. Now, our culture has changed and is in more flux than it has been in hundreds of years. And another one of the greatest sociological phenomena taking place is the growing number of people within our culture and here among us today that find themselves single or single again. Like no other time in current history, many of us in church and in culture are now single. Now, the reasons for singleness are many, from the world moving from a rural to an urban experience, to education taking much longer, to marriage as an expected norm becoming reduced, changed, or abandoned. And then, of course, we come to gatherings like this in church, and when I sit over coffee with people that are single or single again, there is a range of emotions and thoughts and feelings that come up and out out of the conversation. Now, in the church, said or unsaid, meant or not, much of the time, marriage seems to be what is acceptable, and if you're not married by a certain age or stage, many begin to feel like second-class citizens. Statements like, well, when are you going to get married, or the ongoing, never-ending, trying to set people up all the time, and then if you continue to remain single, people automatically in our culture question your sexuality. And then there's the opposite side where many said, well, I want to marry. I mean, I really want to be married, and, and I even might want kids, but there is no place for me to find good followers of Jesus. They seem to be in short supply, and actually, there aren't even really good environments to do this. So it's an ongoing catch-22 for many who want to be married and are genuine, fully devoted followers of Jesus, who want to find other fully devoted followers of Jesus and just can't. Now, singleness comes in a multiplicity of forms. And to say it's just a simple issue is ignorant and deeply unhelpful. And if you're single here and you've been in church and can be incredibly hurtful. And so this morning, as we ask God to speak to our church and into our world, and for us who are living again in this large urban context, as God speaks to those who are single today and those who are single again today, and we who are married, we need to be upfront about the complexity of singleness within our current context and culture. Now, when you read scholars and sociologists on the reality of singleness within the urban West, they tend to land on four major reasons why singleness exists as it does today. The first one is universal. It's been around since the beginning of time. It's age and stage. The day you were born, you entered the world, not married, but single. 
From that day forward, you will be single for your childhood and your teen years and some of your adult life. And as one stops being a teenager and becomes a younger adult at this age and stage, many people still make the choice to be single. They want to develop character or purpose for life or they need to work or they want to go to school or they want to travel and the list goes on and on. And then, of course, in our culture, there's the very real ongoing reality of what they call delayed adolescence. Now, here's the point we need to get as we go going today. People in this age and stage, this is not a permanent thing for them. This is not a forever life choice. It's not an end in itself. It's a prelude for them to considering marriage. Now, now the second and more painful one is unchosen singleness. There are many who want to be married. They want to have a spouse and a family, but for a variety of reasons, it just hasn't happened. It could be because of life circumstance that they have not had the opportunity to marry. For others, the right person in their mind has not appeared yet. On the opposite end, many decide that personal goals or lifestyle choices are more important in that time, and the chance does not come around because they actually spend their time in this first place. For others, there is a great psychological fear of commitment. And so the desire to be married is there, and yet because of the brokenness inside, it is hard to commit. Those in this age, in this stage, or this reality usually have two responses. Many still expect to marry in the future. It's their expectation, their hope. But others begin to start grappling with the reality that maybe they will not be married, and this singleness could become a lifestyle in a permanent way. Now, now, the third category is not really a third yet. There's always this messy, mushy middle, this, this gray between unwilling and willing. In 2002, a major study called the National Marriage Project was done, and a scholar and a woman named Barbara Whitehead wrote an article called Why Men Won't Commit. In her conclusion, she wrote, many men said they would not marry until they found a perfect soulmate who was perfectly compatible with them. Now, this again stirs up the grand problem we spoke about last week, which we need to face down. It is the non-Christian pagan ideal and idea called soulmates. This idea that if there, there is one person out of the 7.1 ever billion, that if you meet them, all things will be right, emotionally and physically and sexually. Now, we all know that that's actually ludicrous, but of almost every movie we watch and the language in our culture is so pervasive that actually many people do believe in the ideal of self-mates. But the reality is, it's just not true. Tim, Call Tim Keller, that famed preacher in New York, called this the new idealism. And he said there are two pillars that have now sort of defined this new idealism. The first one is uh, physical attraction and sexual chemistry. So the person that you must marry has to be amazing looking and has to be that amazing in bed. So in other words, the first starting point is they have to look like Thor or Wonder Woman physically and they have to perform that way in bed or actually it's a non-starter. And the second pillar in this new idealism in the West is called compatibility. Now, compatibility is incredibly important, but compatibility has now changed its sort of meaning and definition. Now he writes, this is what compatibility means. They want someone who has the willingness to take you as you are and not change you. So I want everyone to sit with this this morning. So here is the barrier to marriage. Number one, they have to look like Thor. Number two, they have to be an unbelievable lover. And number three, they cannot change you in any way. Well, that is a non-starter. That is not realistic. Actually, it's devastating. So you have people who are all born, that's all of us, and we start single. There are other people for many reasons who remain, un remain single and they don't want to. 
Then we have these growing sort of illusionary experiences in the middle where there is this picture of perfection which is stopping many. And then there's the third area fully called chosen singleness. Now for some, singleness is a genuine decision. It's a chosen lifestyle. Again, some choose this out of a place of life goals or more travel or more work or more wealth. And for other people, it's not a secular reason, it's a religious reason. The conviction to give one's life fully to God and his work. Within the Catholic tradition, every nun and every priest makes this decision. Within the Protestant tradition, many people do the same thing. One of the most famous preachers and thinkers of the last generation in the Anglican movement, John Stott, will single his whole ministry life and called it a decision for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Many would call this a chosen spiritual discipline that could last for a season or last a lifetime. But then I don't know if you remember, two weeks ago, we were actually reading with Paul through the issue of marriage, and he said that it's not just a decision for some people, it's decided by God, and God gives them a spiritual gift of celibacy in singleness. Remember what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One is this gift, the other has that. Paul was single. Paul loved it. He viewed it as a holy calling. And without blushing or embarrassment, he says, I'm single. And actually, I think a lot more of you should be single too. But he goes farther in that moment, and he calls his singleness a spiritual gift. It's the word charisma. It is the exact same word that Paul uses for teaching and prophesying and speaking in tongues and mercy and faith and giving and evangelism, and the list goes on. So here's what Paul is saying. Some people within the Christian community are ordained by God to be single, and they are given the spiritual gift of celibacy that is chosen for, by God for them. And remember, one scholar said the gift of celibacy is the special ability that God gives certain members of the body of Christ to remain single, and here's the phrase, and enjoy it, to be unmarried and not suffer undue sexual temptation. So it can be a spiritual discipline, or it even can be a spiritual gift. Now, the fourth category of singleness is post-marriage singleness. The fourth reason why people become single is because of death abandonment or divorce. The idea of becoming a widow, which is not always an older person experience, it can happen to a variety of people, and it's happened in this church many times, is you become a widow because your spouse dies, (coughs) or you go through a divorce, or your spouse leaves you. So with all these different expressions of singleness before us, now we need to begin to journey towards what God would want to say to all of us. And first, here's what we need to realize this, this whole day. We need to root everything we talk about in God, in his very nature, in his very DNA, because he is actually the wellspring of truth. Marriage and singleness are actually both reflections of God himself. They're actually found in the very DNA and personhood of God, the God that we worship and love, we've given our lives to, if you are a Christian here today. So let me begin to work this out, because this is critical as we talk about unity and right expectations and being kind later. Number one, marriage, like I've preached before, is rooted and best understood and seen in God's own self-relationship, which we know as Trinity. The Trinity describes God's nature. We are monotheists, we believe in one God, but we're mutated. Here's one great definition. Within God's own mysterious being, God is Father and God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. These designations are just the ways in which God is God. And within the Godhead, there are three persons that are neither three gods, nor three parts of God, but co-equally and co-eternally God. 
you're like, John, I don't understand. It's okay. Here's the point. Marriage, as outlined in the book of Genesis, is a direct reflection of the Trinity. Jesus, Moses, Paul, Peter, James, Jude, the author of Hebrews, the list goes on and on. They have a unified understanding that Adam and Eve is the model, is natural, for this was instituted by the Creator. And marriage reflects the image of God. Like the Trinity, when a husband and wife have mutual sex, they share one flesh, one essence, yet they remain two different people. They share the fundamental essence or sameness, yet remain two two distinct individuals. See, that is why marriage in the Bible is held so highly. That is why sex is amazing and beautiful and fun, but it cannot be changed. By changing the nature and place of sex, we stop reflecting the essence of God. And for the Christian, this is never allowed because we love God even more than our own desires. Yet on the other hand, we know God is not three gods. He is one God. He is one. He is single. Like I said, we are monotheists. And the core of the Judeo-Christian worldview is found in the great, great Jewish cry of Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. Or another translation, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Some of you are saying, well, John, why are you saying all this? Simple. Marriage and singleness are both expressions of God's very nature. And as we read the Bible, they both are expressions of God's desire and will. They are two, this is critical, equal divine options rooted within the creator's makeup. Neither singleness nor marriage should be elevated up or pitted against each other. But that is exactly what has happened intentionally and even unintentionally. In the medieval church, the thought was that singleness was the door to true ecstasy and spirituality and closeness with Jesus. Now, in the modern time that we live in, it's the reverse in the church. The modern church is about the nuclear family and programming and church growth is usually strategically done around families. It's become the hub of spirituality. And the pendulum swing from one to the other does not reflect the heart of God, nor actually the tenure of Scripture. Both are life choices. Both can be fertile ground for God's kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Both expressions are devoted and both expressions are people who are sent. Now, if you read your Bible carefully in the Old Testament, marriage, no doubt, is the dominant theme. Yet if you read carefully, there are multiple people who are single, including, for example, the prophet Jeremiah. You also have the emergence of the Nazarites who actually give themselves fully to God and are single for their whole lives. As you get into the New Testament, there's a growing new role for singleness. The very first person who actually is the last Old Testament prophet, he's the dividing line between holy history, was Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. He was the one who prepared the world for the coming and the message of Jesus, and he was single. Not only that, let's just not forget this in the room today, and then, you know, Jesus was single. And so he's sort of, you know, a good example. Uh, So John the Baptist and Jesus. And then there's a woman named Anna who was widowed very young and remained single the rest of her life. You can read about her in Luke. And then, of course, Paul himself is single. Now, here's my point as we get going today. There are multiple people who are married who love God and are faithful to God. And there are multiple people who are single and love God and give their life to God. And both are good and kind and beautiful expressions of God himself and his will for the world. 
Now, this is where we get back into 1 Corinthians 7. So if you've got a Bible today, virtual or physical, would you turn back to 1 Corinthians 7? Remember, Paul has been trying to work out in this church that is in an urban, multicultural, pluralistic, highly sexualized experience. He's addressing singleness now after he's defined what sexuality is allowed to be, what it's not allowed to be, what marriage is. And now he says, okay, let's really wrestle through those who are single or single again. And here's how he begins in 1 Corinthians 7.25. He says, now about virgins, I have no command from Jesus, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, by the way, that word virgin here can refer to both sexes. And this is an ancient just way of saying those who are not married yet. And basically, Paul starts by saying, listen, Listen, I got struggles and you got struggles. I'm a person, you're a person. We've all got a story. But I just want to remind you, I do have authority to speak. I've been commissioned by Jesus. Now, I've not heard directly from Jesus on this, but I'm walking with him. So listen real close. And then he says these words. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are. Now, the first question I would ask, and hopefully you're asking, well, what present crisis Well, the first view is this, that Jesus is coming back soon and we need to live in the tension of the now and not yet. We live under the banner of imminency, this this understanding that we as Christians have that Jesus could return at any moment. We need to live with that perspective. Other people say, well, no, it's not about imminency. Paul's actually just talking about life, hardships. I mean, the opposition that Christians always encounter while trying to live light in in a dark world. And so Paul says, in light of stuff and trouble we're already going through. Who needs the additional burden of marriage? Now, Paul Below is about to outline the trouble that will befall the married couple. So right up front, he says, if you're single here today, I actually think my advice to you would be, don't get married, remain as you are. Some of you are like, oh no. He says, don't don't worry, Paul's not done. He's already thinking through the implications that could destroy a community or lead people off the emotional or physical or spiritual deep end. So then he quickly says, oh, by the way, are you married? Uh, Do not seek a divorce. Now, that was all of last week's message. If you were not here, go onto the app or or on the website and listen through how he works through divorce and remarried. Here's what Paul is saying. Everyone freeze and don't change your status quickly. We need to think this through. Then he says, are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. Now, unmarried can mean, are you divorced? Has your spouse died? Or have you never been married? Then he says, don't seek marriage. So, so far, Paul's answer is stay as you are. He already said this, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 7, 8. We saw this a few weeks ago. Now to an unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Now, why did he say that? He's, look, he's saying, look, if you're not married, then you're able to give more time and more money, and more kingdom, and more life. You're not divided between what is good and what is best. You can give all you have to the kingdom of God and the work of God because actually you know in the end that marriage is going to go away and so is all this other stuff. But the stuff you do for Jesus lasts for eternity. But right when he uttered those words, just like he did above, he immediately qualifies himself. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. Well, it's good for many not to marry. Marriage is the normal state of affairs. I mean, God set this up from Eden forward. Now, remember what we've learned. There was a group of false teachers in this church in Corinth that was teaching. Do you remember this? They're called Gnostics. That the physical side of you is evil. Your flesh. Your flesh and bone. 
And they said the whole material universe was evil. So some of them were teaching, remember this, it doesn't matter what you do sexually, who you sleep around with, because God doesn't care about your body. Only your soul care, only your soul matters. So sleep around with men and women and anything else. It just doesn't matter because God's only concerned about your soul. And, and Paul came along and said, no, 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 no. You can't divide the spiritual from the physical. We believe in integration and we believe in physical resurrection. You can't use your body any way you want. God has, in, has been explicit about that. Well, another group of the church is saying, well, no, no, those people over there are just sort of getting involved in everything. Actually, you should hate your body and beat your body. And one of the ways you do that is you don't get married because actually the physical side of you is bad. So actually getting married is an unchristian idea. And Paul comes along and says, are you choking me? That, that's been happening since the beginning. And I believe God the Father walked Eve down the aisle to meet Adam the very first time. So actually, don't hate your bodies and don't misuse your bodies. It's actually okay to marry. But then Paul says, but I need to be honest. I need to give you a sober reality check. And it reflects, by the way, his heart. He's not doing this. He's speaking like a dad. He's speaking like a pastor who really cares. He says, but those who marry will face troubles in this life and I just want to spare you of this. Years ago, hundreds of years ago, one person wrote these words. He that hath a wife and children hath given hostage to fortune. Modern terms, marriage implies responsibility. And marriage in times of good and bad and distress leads to all kinds of trouble. Interpersonal trouble, tragedy, uh, finances, personality, children, sickness, children going away, breakup, the list goes on. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. There's joy in marriage, and God has instituted marriage, and there's love in marriage, and, and there's life in marriage. But if you're married, you already know this, there's lots of trouble and struggle in marriage too. And Paul's just saying, I'm just telling you. And then he says, I mean, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is the time is short. You're saying, well, what do you mean the time is short? Paul says, look. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, started the countdown to the end of history. The time is compressed. The, the time is short. And, and, and Jesus' first coming was actually the beginning of the end. And Paul is now concerned, not about the amount of time, but and here, this is critical if you're getting bored with what I'm saying, like lean in. He's saying we all need a radical new perspective as Christians that we must live with all the time and under. We who know Jesus have to have an eternal perspective and see the now in the light of the not yet. The values are not the same. Christians are called to know what counts and what doesn't count. Why? Because Jesus is really coming back. So even marriage and other things of value are secondary to what's going to actually last. And that helps us understand these really weird cryptic words that Paul uses next. From now on, those who have wives should live if they've had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Now this group of verses has been radically misused. This is not saying escape from the world. This is not saying be aloof from it. This is not saying don't get married. This is not saying, you know, if you're married, treat your wife like she's not there. Trust me, that's not going to go well. This is not saying you cannot enjoy food or sex or art. This is not a call to hide and live in a monastery with a bed and one set of clothing. No, this is a call to live in this world and enjoy this world, but understanding that everything that actually we value is going to change or go away. One person put it this way, all of these things, 
Marriage and celibacy, sorrow and rejoicing, buying and using belong to the world in its present form. Marriage belongs to the present scheme of things that is already on its way out. But so does their aestheticism. They're, they're denying themselves. These things may or may not be done, but in either case, they belong to what is passing away. So Paul says, do you even live your life understanding that things that you value the most won't even be around when Jesus comes back? He says, I'd like you to live free from concern. I don't want you to have anxiety. I don't want you to have fear. Since we're living in this time as a person that knows what is to come by looking towards the future, one's life, everyone listen, lean in, does not need to be consumed with marriage or singleness. Now this begins to expose, this hits a nerve. This begins to expose a huge fear that's sitting, not only in this room, but every room and every person that's listening to me right now. We all have this. Actually, for some of you, this is an idol. For many of us, it's like a known consuming darkness that sort of sits in the back of our mind. And here's how it goes. But John, I only have one life to live. I only have one experience. I've got one shot at this and I need to experience as much as I can because you know, at the end I die and that's the end. And Paul goes, excuse me? I'm sorry, you're a Christian, right? You don't really believe that this is the whole deal. You're not living your life like this 80 years or less you've got is the deal. This is the prelude to the real deal. Paul says, no, no, no. What the Bible teaches about the future is true. Jesus is going to come back. There is a new heavens and a new earth. Things are not going to get worse. They're going to get better. So don't give in to things or do things out of fear. Don't get married or remain single and say, well, I've got to do this because he says, stop. The ultimate fulfillment that you're longing for is found in Jesus and what is to come. So Paul says, I want you to give your life and your focus to the service of God without distraction. And you need to root your identity and never make a decision, say, well, I've got one life and it's all going to be over. No, it's not. Resurrection is true. He says, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. A married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. Now, this isn't sinful. A husband, if he's a good husband, wants to love God and his wife and his children if he has them. So he's divided, not sinfully. It just is reality. And if you're a married man today, anyone want to say amen to that? Yeah, that's a man response. Yeah, thanks. Lord bless you. An unmarried woman is exactly the same. Paul says, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord, the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband in the same boat. Now, by the way, if you're single here today and your life is not marked by the Lord's affairs, you're not concerned about the Lord's affairs and you're single, you have a different conversation to have. Now, Paul says, I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in an undivided devotion to Jesus. Now that phrase, not restrict you, if you're taking notes for connect groups this week, this is amazing. This is a Greek idea of hunting. This is how it reads in the original language. I don't want to put a lasso around your neck and choke you. I don't want you to feel trapped. I don't want you to feel captured. I don't want to put you into a cage and constrain you. I just want you to be free. So Paul keeps speaking and reminding them and us marriage is good and no one should feel compelled to remain single 
or to be celibate because that's spiritual. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly towards a virgin that he's engaged to and she's getting along in years and feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should just get married. In other words, get on with it. Remember again, you've got a group of couples in this church 2,000 years ago wondering if it was sinful to get married because all these people are saying, well, marriage isn't that real Christian. And he's like, no. If you're getting along in age, whatever that means, get married. Jesus is okay with the deal. So don't listen to these people yapping over there. It's wrong. But then he says in his same breath, but the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, which implies he's really worked this through, who is under no compulsion, has control over his own will, and has made up his mind not to marry that virgin, that man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, and he who does not marry her, interesting, does even what? Better? Why better? Because he gets to serve the Lord more. Here's why Paul is saying this guy remains single. Not he's like, well, I don't really like that woman, I'm out. No. What Paul is saying is because this guy has made the decision that he is going to use more of his time and more of his money and more of his energy towards furthering the work of Jesus on earth. Well, to end, Paul rounds out the chapter by re, re, uh, reaffirming monogamy as a lifelong commitment. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, remember? But as long as he belongs to Jesus. And this is, I just need to say this up front again. I said this, I think, last week. Christians are only allowed to marry Christians because you cannot have a divided family. Jesus is the epicenter of a marriage. The more you love Jesus, and I've said, I said this last week sort of joking, but I wasn't. You say, well, he's a Christian, you know, he went to a Catholic church once when he was 12. No! A follower, a deeply devoted, baptized follower of the Lord Jesus. Like this is what Paul says. And it's the same with for men and women. The epicenter of a family, if you choose to be married in a Christian context, is Jesus' lordship and his love. He says, in my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. I think I have the spirit of God too. Now that's a pretty intense in your face passage. So here's the question we need to ask across all of our sites. What do we do with this? doesn't matter your age. You could be 80 or 16 or 12 or 19, single, married, single again. Well, here's the first thing I want to say. If you're single here today, and I know many of you are, or you're single again, the very first thing we need to do is this. Without fear, you need to ask God these questions. Would I be willing to be single for the sake of the gospel? Would I be willing to give more of my time and more of my money and more of my energy and more of my life to God knowing what will last forever? This, now, by the way, don't misunderstand this. I'm not saying you're all becoming nuns and priests. Some people will make the decision to be single and make a ton of money, but the reason why they're doing this because they feel constrained by the Lord is actually to further the kingdom of God by using those resources in a different direction. It was the famous Anglican evangelist and preacher of the last generation, Michael Green, who asked the question this way, and by the way, listen to the nuance of it. It's really important. Could I be equally useful to Jesus if married, or would I inevitably curtail my usefulness to him? The quantity of time available for Christian involvement may be reduced once we're married, but its quality actually might be enhanced. Here's the really sort of in-your-face moment. But in all instances, I have no right to marry. Whoa, what? I have no right to marry unless 
I have honestly faced the question on the impact my marriage will have on my Christian life and service. Now, I know what happens because I've had this conversation before. Some of you are afraid to say this out loud. You think if you ask the question out loud, God's going to go, oh, that's it, you're done, sign in blood. I heard you ask, single. No. God is a good, loving God. This weird idea we've got, well, if I say it out loud, you know, it's all going to be sealed. God knows your thoughts and he lives in you. Just say it out loud. Psychologists tell you it will be better anyway, so just say it. Just say, okay, God... Are you asking me to be single? Are you asking me to be single for a lifetime? Uh, Are you asking me to be single for a moment or or not? Just ask him. It's okay. And remember, he's a good dad and he's loving and he knows your desires and he knows what you want and he understands your pain and he knows you feel lonely. Like all of that's on the table. But the very first question is, are you even willing to trust him to say, God, what are you asking of me? How do I take up my cross? By the way, our world is tired of words and needs real, genuine, life-change commitment. And one expression of that in our culture is singleness for the sake of the kingdom. By the way, if you're single or single again, you should also ask the Holy Spirit if he's given you the spiritual gift of singleness. I have to say to him, just like preaching or mercy, Lord, have you actually sovereignly decided that I'm going to be single And I will enjoy singleness at many points and the sexual tension will not be as high for me. Lord, is this what you're calling me into? Now, whether you're single or single again here today, I would encourage you pastorally to read the stories of Paul and Anna and Martha and Jeremiah and Ruth and Joseph and John the Baptist. They were single for a period or for a lifetime But I think in those stories, you can see the struggle, the question, and the honesty in the context. And I think it might give you vocabulary and understanding and freedom to have a greater conversation. Now, secondly, we as a church family need to work hard with each other on this issue. We who are married and we who are single, we need to do church together without labels, without comparisons, and here's a big one, and without expectations. Those who are single or single again are not second-class citizens in this church or in any church, period. They should never be viewed with suspicion. They should be given full acceptance and affirmation. They actually reflect one expression of God's very DNA. Also, we need to realize this morning that God is the one who chooses the destiny of his people. It is God's will, not our family's will, not our friend's uh, will or view that matter in the end. See, some of you are like, but I want grandchildren. I know. But have you as a grandparent ever asked God if God wants you to have grandchildren? Before you put pressure, stop and ask God, what are you saying to me? Not just my children, but to me or to, to my friends. We have to give space and time for those who are single to struggle through in our culture in 2018 what it means for them and then affirm them when they actually feel what God is doing in and through them. But it has to be done in community and it's a two-way street. Also, we need to be very careful and stop any form of shame or body language or unthoughtful statements to single people. It's just not fair. And if we've done it, we just need to apologize. God calls both married people and single people under Jesus to be sensitive and open communication. We're the body of Christ. We need to keep learning how to listen and be with each other socially and spiritually. We need to deal with unsaid expectations. This is critical. When I hang out with single people, they say, yeah, yeah, my married friends never call me anymore. 
Because they all got married, they got kids, and I get it, but they never call. But then when I talk to the married people, they say, well, the single people never called me. So instead of actually throwing rocks when no one knows rocks are being thrown, everyone start talking, please. It matters. But here's the critical moment. This is the moment in the message that matters the most. We need to be thankful for where we are and what we have. The greatest danger sitting in this church today over this issue is not that you're married or single. It's actually Satan. You're like, what? Yeah. This is what the enemy always does. He will come to you who are single and we who are married, and he will always point us to what we do not have. So we will never focus on what we do have. Think about Satan in the garden. Adam and Eve had everything. They walked with each other. They are actually married. They walked, they had everything. They were only not allowed what? One tree. The fallen one took time and pointed to them the one thing they could not have. And that is what he will do with every person sitting in this room. Those who are married, he will say, but look what you don't have. Look what you cannot have. Don't you know God isn't fair? Actually, you should have a better marriage. You need options. You, you should have a better spouse. They're getting old. Look at that new model down the street. It's so much better. He wants you to covet. He wants you to have jealousy that will lead you to adultery and abandonment. This is what he'll whisper to you. The grass is greener over there. Well, let me respond to that. No, it's not. It's just more grass. Or as another person said, grass is green where you water it. So why don't you water the marriage you have? The evil one will come to married people and always show the options of what's better. The evil one will come to single people and he'll say, look what you don't have. You're nothing. You're a failure. Uh, you know, or he'll say this, which is the more common one. Uh, you're not happy and it's not fair. And so it's actually okay. God, God doesn't love you, but you should love yourself. So here's how this goes. It's okay to break God's laws. Just break God's laws because your happiness is more important than your holiness. God wants you to be happy, not obedient. He also wants you to be bitter and full of resentment towards married people. He wants you to look at married people and say, oh, see, look at them. And in the end, what does that do? That causes disunity and breakdown. Now, this isn't just a conversation that solves over one sermon. This is a conversation that has to take time. It implies struggle and wrestle and affirmation in the middle. My call to all of us is this. If you're single, ask the Lord, what is he asking of you? And remember, how does Paul actually mark this whole conversation? He says, just don't forget, marriage is passing away. Marriage is not coming in the new heavens and the new earth. I love my wife, Joanna. Joanna loves me. Yep. And, uh, but here's the amazing thing that all married people need to realize. When we're in heaven, we won't be married. And you're like, what? No, we won't. My obsession will be Jesus, not my wife. We'll hang out, but we'll be way more concerned and in love with him than each other. That should put everything in perspective. If you're single, say before the Lord, what are you saying? If you're single, do not sin in your singleness because it leads to heartbreak. If you're married, respect those who are single and love them. If you're, if you're married, guard your marriage as an example. But together, we all must hear this. Singleness and marriage are both divine expressions of God's will. Both are welcomed, and it does not make you less or more. Our focus together as a community must be Jesus, his kingdom, and furthering what he's about.
So with that, would you all stand here and all other sites and let's just take a moment to pray together and we'll prepare to worship, uh, respond, uh, respond in worship. So Lord, just so much to work out the room. Pain, excitement, joy, wondering, fear, it's all sitting here. But number one, Lord, we pray for every person who's single or single again in our church. We take the moment and we pray, Lord, that you'd be with them in their, sometimes their loneliness and their distraction and their discomfort. And we don't do this in sort of a pejorative way. We're really praying, Lord, be with them and help us to honor them and love them and respect them and work. And we who are married, help us, Lord, also in our marriages. And we pray for the unity between single and married people in our church. If we pray against the work of the enemy that always points us to the things we don't have. And we pray that none of us would break God's heart and God's law by actually doing something we're not called to do. But Lord, we pray for those who actually might in this moment be realizing they might be called into singleness. Lord, then use them for the kingdom. Others that are not sure yet, speak to them, Lord. For others who want to get married, Lord, we pray that you'd actually provide environments where they could find a spouse actually so they could be loved. We pray, Holy Spirit, you'd undo wrong expectations that we'd have eyes from heaven. But overall, we pray, Lord, we dedicate every single person and every married person in our church, and we just pray for the ongoing kingdom of Jesus, the will of the Father to happen in our lives. Give us hope and help us to live life. Here's the end prayer. Help us to live our life understanding what stays and what passes. Do your work among us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.